0: Hey, Rarecast listeners. I wanted to tell you about a new program from Global Genes called Data DIY. Access to data is essential for advancing the understanding and treatment of rare diseases. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is to be as savvy about data as researchers and clinicians. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders. How to Become Empowered Data Owners and Stewards. If you'd like to learn more about the program, attend an upcoming Data DIY Workshop, or view resources, go to globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. David Gilliohan likens his company's spherical nucleic acid constructs to cushballs, balls, but instead of having elastic strings extending from their core, this new class of immunomodulatory and gene-regulating drugs are covered with nucleic acids that stick out in all directions. The arrangement allows these oligonucleotides to be taken up by all cell types and can be delivered throughout the body, allowing them to overcome some of the limitations of existing nucleic acid therapies. We spoke to Gil Johan, CEO of Execure, about the company's SNA therapies, how they work, and why they have broad potential to treat a wide range of conditions, including rare neurological diseases. David, thanks for joining us. Danny, happy to be here. Thanks for
1: taking the time to interview me.
0: We're going to talk about Execure, a new class of immunomodulary and gene-regulating drugs using your spherical nucleic acid platform and the potential targets for these new drugs. Let's start with spherical nucleic acid constructs. What exactly are they?
1: Sure. Well, we affectionately call our spherical nucleic acids a "kush ball." Um, so, if you remember that childhood toy, um, you know that bounces around uh, with the uh, kind of uh, hair-like structures coming on out the outside. Um, that's what a cartoon version of our spherical nucleic acids are. Um, the spherical part is essentially an arrangement of DNA or RNA, um, and we put them around the outside of a nanoparticle core to form those three-dimensional kushball like structures. Um, and very importantly, and uh, for the technology as well as all the properties that we've seen thus far, when we make these very special structures, um, these um, have the DNA on the outside of the nanoparticle rather than hiding the DNA on the inside of the nanoparticle. Um, and that's really important in the space because by putting the DNA and RNA on the outside of these structures, we have a unique ability to get into cells and tissues of different varieties.
0: Are these considered oligonucleotides, and how might they differ?
1: Yeah, so our spherical nucleic acids are made up of DNA and RNA strands, so-called oligonucleotides. Um, I know you've had Stan Crook and some others on the phone before talking about ASO-type therapies, and I sense oligonucleotides. Um, What's unique about ours is that three-dimensional architecture. So the arrangement in space, um, it turns out, makes a big difference to the cells when it comes to recognition and internalization of the DNA and RNA. And so rather than chemically modify our DNA and RNA structures, what we've been able to uh, do is create naturally occurring DNA and RNA bases that don't have chemical modification and yet are able to deliver across lots of cells and tissue types beyond the liver.
0: And why is this able to hit other targets that more conventional therapies haven't been able to
1: reach? Yeah, with nucleic acid therapies historically, what you find is um, that you inject these into the body, and they end up being first pass cleared by the liver. And so if you look at the last 20 or 30 years of nucleic acid development, you're going to find that the primary focus and the initial focus for a lot of nucleic acid companies has been liver-based targets. And in fact, over the last couple of years, you'll notice that there's been a, um, several approvals that have happened in the nucleic acid therapeutic space, um, all based upon liver targets. Um, what's really unique for ours is that the receptors that we find we engage with, with our spherical nucleic acid technology, um, allow us to get into all different cells and tissue types um, through a universal receptor that uh, we identified that is recognized uh, recognizing these structures called scavenger receptors. And the scavenger receptors allow you to get these spherical nucleic acids into all different cells and tissue types by locally and topically delivering the nucleic acids. And so think of this, and rather than being a shot um, where it ends up in your bloodstream and ends up being in the liver, um, we're using gels and creams to apply locally on the skin we're looking at direct injections in the eye. We have programs that we're working on right now where we're using intrathecal injection for spinal cord delivery to get nucleic acids up into the brain. In all these cases, we're using either a local injection approach or wherever inside touches the outside, combined with that receptor, which seems to uniquely recognize our spherical nucleic acid structure, to get 100% of the drug to the tissue and target organ of interest from the time we apply it, um, and thus skip that first task clearance, which has been a challenge for the nucleic acid field now for several decades.
0: I want to focus on the potential for SNAs to treat genetic neurological diseases, but before we do, I did want to touch on its use as an immunotherapeutic agent. How does this differ from currently available immunotherapies?
1: Sure. So with our immunotherapy that we currently have heading towards a phase two trial, what we're doing is we're using DNA molecules to tickle these toll-like receptors that are inside cells. Um, These toll-like receptors lead to the mounting of a natural uh, defense system in the body, the immune system that allows you to uh, essentially turn up or amp up the immune system as a response uh, to these DNA and RNA sequences. We want to do that um, in a lot of cases, people that are being treated um, with Uh, therapies right now, uh, especially checkpoint inhibitors, are immunosuppressed, so they don't have an active immune system. And so the concept that we have here is by activating the immune system using stimulatory pieces of DNA or RNA, we're able to turn on that immune system and let the body's natural defenses go to work against the cancer um, we found that these structures that we've created, these three-dimensional spherical nucleic acid versions of these TLR9 sequences have been effective um, in combination preclinically with lots of different checkpoint inhibitors. And so for your audience that's familiar with checkpoint inhibitors, which has been a, a real, uh, you know, tremendous advance in the immunotherapy space, checkpoint inhibitors lift, lift the brakes off the immune system. And what we're doing is essentially, um, in combination with taking the brakes off, adding a very high octane gas that then turns the immune system on. So, that one two punch of taking the brakes off plus adding the high octane gas makes the immune system go, and in this case, go after the cancer.
0: This is so they are
1: very simply. Yeah. You're
0: targeting part of the innate immune system. One of the issues, I take it, is that this can create much more of a, a systemic response. How targeted a response do you get with? your
1: SNAs? That's a great question. So, for us, we're using a local injection approach, again, with our structures. So, we're locally injecting into cutaneous tumors, um, and therefore, we are essentially creating a combination of an antigen and an adjuvant right at the site that we want it to. Um, So, we are mounting a systemic immune response, but it's focused, if you will, um, at the site of a particular tumor of interest. Um, And that combination of the innate immune system plus the checkpoint inhibitors, um, you know, we've seen also leads to adaptive immunotherapy over time. Does that mean you'll be limiting the indications you'll pursue with that therapy? So right now we're starting with these local um, cutaneous type tumors, but ultimately what we find is that anytime you can activate the immune system productively, for example, by injecting into lymph nodes, as long as there's enough antigen present, you're able to go after various different tumor types. And so I think coming attractions for this space and for our technology will be to be able to do injections, for example, in the armpit where you have lymph nodes, uh, load up those lymph nodes as well with some antigens that could be synthetically produced um, or potentially extracted from patients, and then use that combination of the antigens plus a local injection into the immune system through a lymphatic delivery to go after various different types of cancers, which might not be accessible uh, through a local injection approach.
0: So we've touched on the broad range of indications you're looking at, whether it's neurological, oncology, uh, you mentioned the eye and skin. Given that this technology can be used to treat such a a broad range of, of genetic targets, how do you go about prioritizing the indications you're pursuing?
1: That's, I think, one of the toughest things that we spend our time on here at the company, um, obviously one of the great, tremendous accomplishments of the last decade has been the sequencing of the human genome. And so the wealth of genetic information that's out there, uh, you know, is just tremendous. And I think coupled in the last uh, several decades with understanding of the underlying disease biologies and pathologies, you know, the information is there. Uh, and now the question is if we have a technology like ours that can access so many different types of diseases with underlying genetic causes, which other appropriate ones to go after. And I'll tell you, we've got the most Friday afternoon debates uh, sitting around uh, the the conference room table about what are the right ones that we want to tackle first. Uh, But ultimately, I think what's so exciting about this technology is that it does have that breadth to it, um, that no longer are we limited to going after systemic oligonucleotide DNA and RNA therapy in the liver, Uh, but we really can start thinking about bringing the promise and the potential of nucleic acid therapies to all different types of diseases and indications outside that liver space.
0: You've disclosed five preclinical programs in neurology. You haven't disclosed your targets for ALS or Huntington's disease, but you had for three other indications. I I wanted to touch on each of those conditions. Let's start with
1: Friedrich's ataxia. What is it? Um so Friedrich's ataxia is an autosomal recessive neurological disorder. Um it's generally diagnosed around age 10 um although it uh, has a really broad age span. Um leads it is a neuromuscular disorder it leads to impaired speech that gets worse over time that's often the first symptoms um, and then what you find is that patients have progressive uh, worsening of muscle strength leading to uh debilitation of ambulatory uh, function and full-time use of the wheelchair. Um, ultimately, you know, a lot of these progress as well uh, to be heart conditions um, and uh, can cause uh, you know cardiomyopathy um, and, and various other different heart conditions, um, which oftentimes is fatal. Uh, this uh, autosomal recessive mutation is uh, so inherited, but it's also triggered uh, by excessive repeats of a gene called protaxin. Um, and so having too much, uh, for taxon, uh, r- and, and particularly this GAA repeat of this for region is a bad thing. Um, so this expansion of this GAA repeat, um, essentially causes the problems that lead to this neuromuscular disease, um, in about one in, uh, 50,000, uh, people in the U.S. And, and where exactly are you in development? When might you enter the clinic? Yeah, so we have candidates that we've identified um, now preclinically. We're running animal models as we speak. And we're intending to get into clinic uh, sometime next year, um, so 2021. Uh, we're expecting to be first in patients. The nice thing about genetic therapies, I'm sure some of your other guests have talked about, is that they can be developed relatively rapidly. Um, so you can take a gene sequence, uh, for example, in this case for taxin. We know what the uh, disease leads to, so what disease pathology is. Uh, and so the, the uh, challenge really designing the drugs uh, goes away. Um, we can easily synthesize synthetically a drug to hit that gene. Um, the question now is um, how quickly we can take it through preclinical um, toxicology packages um, and uh, get it safely into humans um, so that we can start having an effect uh, positively on this patient population as soon as possible. And, and how did you come to pursue Friedrich's ataxia? We spent a lot of time over the last year looking at various different neurological disorders, and uh, part of our focus was trying to figure out where are uh, rare genetic diseases that are well-defined in that the underlying disease uh, uh, gene mutation is known, so not something like an Alzheimer's, uh, but where is there a very clear link between a genetic mutation and something that a patient uh, ultimately suffers from, uh, for example, in the ataxia space that we just described. Um, Then I guess the second filter that we went through was, you know, are these diseases being looked at by others in a way that we think is productive? Um, Are there therapies developed for Friedrich's Ataxia, which we think are ultimately going to lead to improved patient quality of life, improved patient survival? And in in the case of Friedrich's Ataxia, we found there's a number of things that are in development, uh, but none of them are really going after the underlying genetic causes. And that was, um, I think for us, uh, really the uh, litmus test for deciding to take this on as a company and and really pursuing it heavily here at Execure. How about uh,
0: spinocerebular ataxia? Where is this program and, and what do you
1: expect your therapy to do there? Yeah, so very similar. It's in the same class of neuromuscular uh, degenerative disorders. In this case, there are a few mutations, uh, these SCA1, 2, and 3 mutations, uh, which uh, patients can have that lead to the very same symptoms that we described for fruiterous ataxia. Uh, but the underlying genetic cause is, in this case, a different gene and a, and a different locus. Uh, we are currently screening, and because we know what that gene is, uh, very uh, uh carefully walking through gene walking and finding the mutation sites um, and then developing our spherical nucleic acid to target those places. But we're expecting to have preclinical candidates identified this year as well um, and expect to have some of those therapies into clinic as early as 2022.
0: Uh, last program I wanted to ask you about was your program for CLN3 type of Batten disease. What is it, how did you come pr- pursue that and and what is your therapy expected to do?
1: Yeah, so Batten's disease um, is driven by the CLN3 mutation, as you mentioned. It actually first came to us as a disease that we we're looking at um, in the eye. Um, so uh, this is, in our case, with the local injection into the spinal cord to up in the brain, we're going after the neuromuscular component of it. Uh, in this case, uh, same type of thing, often earlier onset, um, so worsening problems with vision, movement, uh, you know, cognitive abilities, etc. Uh, very clearly, genetically driven. Uh, the spot this, on the CLN gene that is mutated is now well established. Uh, it's inherited, um, and there are some great patient advocacy groups out there uh, that have identified uh, the children really that are affected with this disease. Uh, once we have those kind of pillars in place, where we have um, you know some good uh, patient groups that can help support the development um, and get us in touch. Uh, With the patients early on in development, as well as underlying genetic biology uh, that we can start developing a targeted spherical nucleic acid for. And the final step for us is to uh, get together the uh, funding and the ability to take it forward and, um, you know, uh, finance it through to the clinical proof points, which we think are going to be so important for patients that are afflicted with this disease.
0: And in the case of these therapies, is it expected they would be chronically administered?
1: It is. Um, so, unlike gene therapies, um, which are being developed for um, introducing genes that are missing um, and causing essentially permanent expression of a gene um, through introdu- introduction of a new gene, and what we're trying to do here is essentially correct uh, transitively or temporarily, if you will, um, the production of um, an aberrant gene, so one that's misexpressed. So, you um, The difference between gene regulation and gene therapy, I think, is an important one to understand. Um, Gene therapies are meant to be, you know, quote, one and done um, and are applicable to a certain type and class of disease. In our case, uh, we have uh, essentially a chronic uh, type administration where we are going after a gene that is already existing in the body uh, but is uh, mistaken in terms of its expression and its expression level uh, by the um, production of the proteins, which is something that we can... Uh, tackle not by the introduction of the gene, but by the silencing of a gene with an antisense-type technology. We have certainly
0: seen successful oligonucleotides come to market. What do you think it will take to prove that SNAs represent a a better way of doing these types of therapies?
1: Yeah, so we've been very enthusiastic about some of the approvals that have happened in the DNA and RNA therapeutic space, especially in the last couple of years. Um, One of the very close to the disease limit, talking about spinal muscular atrophy, of course, had a uh, approval now about two years ago uh, for a drug that's commercially marketed as Spinraza. And in the case of Spinraza, that's an intrathecal injection into the spinal cord. um, That nucleic acid, which was developed by Ionis and Biogen, gets up into the brain, um, but it dissipates pretty quickly. Um, So these patients are currently being injected several times a year. Um, the amount of oligonucleotide that actually gets into the cells uh, that are afflicted and into the tissues that are afflicted is relatively small. And what we've seen with a technology like ours, which we think is uh, really helpful for uh, the therapeutic outcomes for the patients as well as uh, the administration to the patients, is that we can do much fewer injections of our spherical nucleic acids. We have much better penetrance into the cells and tissues of interest. Um, And as a result, um, in mouse models, at least so far, we've been able to show that you can do um, much fewer um, type injections of much smaller concentrations of nucleic acid and have a very durable effect um, in the animal models, which, uh, if it translates up to patients, I think is going to be a tremendous um, opportunity for, for example, to go in for once a year type um, therapy rather than having to go in as a, a child several times a year to have a spinal tap done. Um, so the promise for our spherical nucleic acid technology is really about um, creating these structures which, because of their ability to get the cells uh, so much more fastly, are able to uh, limit the amount of nucleic acid uh, administration that need to be done for any particular one disease.
0: David Gill CEO of Execure. David, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thanks. I appreciate being here. Thanks for listening.